Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have me, Sacred Stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. What's up, monkeys? Monkey Dan here, and welcome to the Live Wild or Die podcast. On this episode, I'd like to welcome back the wild man, Brad Kearns. And Brad was a guest a few episodes back, and I was actually just a guest on his podcast, the B-Rad podcast, so definitely check that out. But Brad Kearns, he's a wild man. He's authored 20 books, and his newest book he co-authored with another wild man, Mark Sisson, who is essentially one of the godfathers of really this paleo and alternative health and wellness movement. So I've been following both these guys for a really long time. Their new book is called two meals a day. It's all about developing metabolic flexibility. And they really give you these awesome strategies for how you can really create this. It's a lifestyle is really what they're advocating versus like, you know, this crash diet. So stoked for you guys to check that out. And a little bit more about Brad. Like I said, he's the host of the B rad podcast and he's a former pro triathlete. He was ranked at one time third in the world. That's pretty legit. He's a Guinness world record holder for speed golf. He's an all around wild man. And again, it's been, I mentioned this in our conversation, but I've been following Brad for a while and it's been really cool to hear about his just kind of lifelong journey from being focused really on just the physicality and the training and then adding in the nutrition on top of that. And then now he's kind of adding this third layer of this working on the mind. So it's been really cool to follow his journey. I think you guys are going to enjoy our conversation and check out the book. So here we go. All right. Well, let's rock and roll. Brad okay, Kearns, man. welcome back. Appreciate you taking the time, man. Oh my gosh. What an honor, Dan. I'm so excited. And we have such great conversations. We were talking offline about how you and I, we could easily freewheel it for an hour. And, um, you know, that, that always comes out great. Uh, but you also... Uh, got deep into this exciting new book. And so I appreciate all the things you threw back at me. And I think we have some, some really important points to discuss. Hell yeah. So before we dive into the book, I had some background questions because I was curious, how many books have you written now? Oh, geez. It's, it's somewhere around 20. Um, and interestingly, I, I've talked to people about writing a, a few times, like a, you know, an audience of students or something, and they're asking for your secrets and your tips. And I'm like, you know what? I ain't giving anybody tips because I want you to go and do what works for you. And I remember when I was a young person and, you know, went to a seminar and, and learned from expert writers and they, they would say, you know, I get my mug of coffee and I, and I sit by the window and I write for four straight hours without a break every single day. And then I go about my life and, you know, you just get so intimidated about the, about the concept or the idea of, of sitting down to write a book. But I think um, it, it's one of the list of bucket, it's one of the high bucket list items for people. Like a lot of people say they want to write a book someday. Uh, sometimes it's their memoirs, like something that everybody should do is write about your own life. Uh, but I think there's a lot of barriers to where, you know, we feel intimidated or we don't have the skill set. And um, my thing that's worked for me is just sitting down and, and cranking stuff out, even if it's not good. Um, the great writer Anne Lamott, she's written a string of best-selling books. And um, one of the um, 
one of the chapters in her book, Bird by Bird, which is about the writing process, uh, is uh, shitty first drafts. And, you know, she talks about how, how great it is just to write anything and, you know, hit send or hit print and you've done something for yourself. So, yeah, I've written a, a lot of books and losing count. Uh, and interestingly, uh, a good handful of them have never been published. So no one's, no oh. one's read them for whatever reason. You just kind of turned the corner and did something else with the material. So uh, it's nice when people can actually uh, read the book and, uh, we're so excited about this new launch of Two Meals a Day because we have a great publisher and, uh, you know, we're getting the word out. And I think it's something that's uh, really timely because especially for guys like us who live and breathe this stuff every day, there's a lot of controversy and confusion now about what healthy eating is. And we have voices shouting on the other sides of the aisle saying, no, you guys are full of beans. This is the, the, the true way to eat. And, you know, we need to have a sustainable planet so you can't eat any meat because that's a, a disaster and you're a disgrace and a, and a, and a pig. And, um, you know, it's this back and forth that gets really confusing for the lay person. And as a matter of fact, I associate with normal everyday people like my childhood friends and we're sitting around at a gathering and they're like, hey, dude, what is going on with this? You know, have you heard of this beyond meat stuff? Is it really super healthy? And I'm like, you know, cringing inside. But, you know, we've been hit with a lot of marketing hype and messaging that's trying to convince us. And, you know, we need to get back to basics. We need to do things that are simple and sustainable. So that's kind of the direction we took on this book is to cut through the controversy and maybe even appeal to people with broad dietary interests. So if you insist upon uh, going with this plant-based, uh, eliminating animal foods, we're calling that out as a high-risk diet, right? Because you're, you're putting aside many of the foods that are ranked as the most nutritious on earth. But you can do it if you do it carefully. And, you know, the other factors that come into play are like your lifestyle and your your eating patterns themselves, like how often you're snacking and eating meals and mini meals. And uh, so that's a big one. That's why, you know, two meals a day, obviously, on the outside, we're talking about making the good food choices and also eating less frequently because that's a huge health risk of this constant grazing and snacking. For sure. And, you know, what really what I'm really excited about two meals a day is the way you guys are approaching it. It seems more like from a first principles standpoint, it's, it's a little higher level. It's more kind of lifestyle focused. It seems versus like you must do this and eat this. You know, I, I really appreciate that. So. Yeah. It's kind of like in fitness where, you know, you can get into a deep philosophical debate about whether uh, free weights are superior to the machines or to resistance bands. And it's like, wait a second, here's what's superior getting your ass off the couch and into a workout situation, whether you're pulling the monkey ball on your door frame or joining a gym or walking down the street or going to the park and doing the parkour. So I don't care, you know, anything before we, you know, get the proper starting point. And I think you can make an analogy to uh, healthy eating too. And at, at the start of the book, we say, look, here's the first step is you got to ditch the, uh, you know, nutrient deficient, toxic modern foods before we start talking about diet and macros and planning you know you got to get the junk out of your diet or you don't pass go and you might as well close the book or turn off this podcast or whatever before we can get those basic steps done for sure for sure and yourself and your co-author the sisson the wild man mark sisson you guys were kind of like you're early on in the paleo movement he's kind of one of the godfathers of the paleo diet and that just whole paleo movement scene What's been the evolution like 
from the paleo diet to the keto diet and then to now this concept of metabolic flexibility, which I love. I guess the the evolution is at some point in the early 2000s, um, you know, the, the true forefathers and researchers, Dr. Boyd Eaton, Lauren Cordain, um, were publishing research about uh, ancestral style eating patterns. Um, Weston A. Price has been doing this for a hundred years, Weston A. Price Foundation. And, you know, so many people deserve credit for uh, examining the idea that the evolutionary model of eating as well as living uh, is something that we might want to pay attention to because we've, you know, survived here for two and a half million years. We've risen to the top of the food chain. We have strong brains, strong bodies, and then we're throwing a bunch of processed food down our throats and sitting around and using digital devices. So uh, this idea of getting back to our ancestors roots with the way that we live our lives. And the paleo diet uh, certainly kicked into gear over time. But I think the great thing that Mark did was come up with this primal blueprint concept, which not only was uh, choosing the right foods aligned with our ancestral experience, but also plugging in all the different lifestyle factors that the attempt is to model the hunter-gatherer lifestyle of our ancestors, uh, making all these allowances and adjustments for the realities of modern life. So, you know, we're supposed to get adequate sleep every night. And for a couple million years, uh, when it got dark, when the sun set, that's when the humans started to wind down. Uh, this metabolic process called dim light melatonin onset would kick into gear. And melatonin is the hormone that makes you feel sleepy and your eyes feel heavy and you want to, you know, just slow down and go to sleep. Uh, so that happened on cue with the sunset for millions of years until uh, the great Thomas Edison and everybody else that, you know, uh, Steve Jobs and, and Mr. Netflix and all the things that keep us up after dark now. And so that's a huge genetic disconnect that we face in modern life. So, you know, one of the fundamentals of the primal blueprint, the 10 laws of the primal blueprint, the original book that was published in 2009 is, is get enough sleep by minimizing artificial light and digital stimulation, your Netflix queue and your emails and your uh, personal device, you know, minimize that stuff after dark so we can get back in touch with our extremely important circadian rhythm. And then you go into the exercise habits and all the things that we're kind of screwing up today and just always honoring the genetic expectations for health. And so speaking of, you know, the controversy and who, who's on this side of the, the coin and which type of exercise is better, is it cardio or strength training? Um, if you go to that evolutionary model and realize what, you know, what our hunter-gatherer ancestors did, I think it's a really... Um, it's, it's a solid way to sort through uh, the difference in scientific studies and conclusions. And one day you see a study that says this, and the next day you see something different. And I think anybody can kind of go and dig up and cite a study to advocate for whatever their personal opinion is or the, or the thing that they're pitching. And I think the, the evolutionary model trumps all. It's the most uh, you know severe and prolonged scientific study in the history of the universe, right? And so uh, if this is what our ancestors were like, it's probably something that's going to support your health rather than compromise it. For sure. For sure. Actually, uh, so I didn't really answer your question, man, but um, so, you know, it started with this uh, idea that we should, um, uh, you know, eliminate nutrient deficient modern foods, which didn't exist in paleolithic times. And I think the main highlight there was that this included grains. And for me, this was an eye-opener back in 2008. Mark said, okay, here's the deal. Here's the diet you, you, you follow. Uh, you, you don't eat grains. 
at all. And I'm like, wait a second, you know, we're, we're, we're born and raised on the standard American grain based diet and the healthy whole grains are the foundation of the food pyramid. So I always choose whole wheat bread instead of that nasty wonder bread. And I order brown rice at the restaurant instead of white rice. Uh, but this was tossing all those out and putting them in the same category, which is, you know, high insulin stimulating foods that don't have much nutritional value in comparison to a truly nutritious food like an egg or a, a slice of liver or a steak or a can of sardines. And so, you know, your whole wheat bread, your white bread, your, your rice, your cereal, all that stuff to uh, kind of put that aside and then go looking for, you know, the foods in the plant and the animal kingdom that nourished human evolution. That was the explosion of the, uh, the paleo, the primal diet. And then keto came along in recent times. And it was kind of fun to be on the cutting edge of that, Dan, because Mark and I, you know, we're, you know, we have great agents and publishers and they're looking at the trends and they're saying, you know, this keto thing might be the next dietary craze. <laughs> and so, you know, we had to go roll up our sleeves and learn about this whole deal and interview, you know, some of the leading researchers uh, looking at the work of Finney and Volick, who were early pioneers in the ketogenic diet. Uh, I talked to Dom D'Agostino for an hour on the phone and, you know, he was a great interview and had so much knowledge. And of course, he's one of the leading scientists in the ketogenic realm. I remember from that interview, as an aside, he said, I don't know so many times that I finally got exasperated. I'm like, dude, that's your favorite answer. And you know, I know you're the top guy, but why do you keep saying I don't know? And he goes, beware of any scientist that uh, makes these sweeping conclusions. He goes, a truly good scientist will have that open mind and say, I don't know more so than uh, I know with certainty. And so I guess that's for, for the lay people out there that are, you know, making these sweeping conclusions at their cocktail gathering about, you know, what's the right way to train or eat. And I thought that was something that was really memorable. So I keep that open mind. And for me, it's been an amazing experience recently uh, to see the rise of the carnivore diet. Because uh, some of the principles were flying in the face of these fixed and rigid beliefs that I'd personally formed uh, being, you know, truly deep into this uh, primal paleo ancestral living experience where, you know, the centerpiece of our diet, of course, is the healthy, nutritious, colorful plant life that you pile up on your plate. And that's how I ate in my own life. I had giant salads almost every single day. I'd go to the store and pick out all kinds of, you know, uh, produce and make these giant stir fries and proudly serve them to my family that we were eating as healthy as could possibly be. And then, you know, these leaders like Dr. Paul Saladino, Dr. Sean Baker, listening to Amber O'Hearn or Michaela Peterson talk about yeah, you know, this plant food, we don't really need it to be healthy. And it quite possibly can be harming a great many people who are sensitive to the plant toxins. And I'm like, what the F are you talking about? <laughs> and, you know, I had to kind of put aside my fixed and rigid beliefs and be open minded and be willing to experiment. And in fact, what's happened since I was first exposed to uh, this carnivore premise in detail uh, listening to Ben Greenfield and Paul Saladino in, I believe, April of 2019 and the epic podcast that kind of presented it, um, you know, it got into my head and it hasn't left. And so I've made what I believe is a permanent shift in my dietary patterns to emphasize in, you know, an animal emphasis diet or a carnivore-ish diet where my meals, the centerpiece are these nutrient dense animal foods, especially the superfoods like the pastured eggs and the oily cold water fish and the organ meats. And I've put aside, I no longer go looking for produce and plant life in the name of health. So I haven't had a salad in two 
years because I lost my appetite for it as soon as I kind of opened my mind to the idea that, um, you know, there's there's some different different perspective here that we really have to uh, look deeply at and, and reflect and consider. Sure, sure. I, you know, I've heard, um, I was just listening to Matt Chan. He's a old kind of OG CrossFitter. He won the Titan games recently. Um, he's a Colorado guy, but I was listening to him talk about how, you know, their nutrition advice, regardless of your nutritional philosophy was protein first, make protein the center of your plate. And then, you know, looking at your blog and kind of what you've created as kind of how to base your meals, you know, around the animal proteins and I think a lot of people hear carnivore or carnivore-ish diet and they think like, oh my God, you're just eating ribeyes all day, every day. But that's, that's certainly not it. You're, you're including other things. You're just, you've kind of flipped the pyramid in a way, I guess. Yeah. And here's the thing about restrictive diets. You, you're probably looking at the majority of benefits coming from what you don't eat rather than the magical powers of the ribeye or Sean Baker saying, Hey man, I don't, you know, I'm not even too worried about being selective. I go to Costco and see right. what's on sale right. and I buy my, uh, you know, my steaks and bring it home and cook them. Uh, but he's eliminating, uh, those, those plants that, uh, have caused all kinds of health problems. And so many people are sharing their stories of, you know, having an awakening and, and writing these nagging, autoimmune and inflammatory conditions. So I think anyone listening who's suffering from a nagging condition that doesn't seem to go away uh, would benefit from a restrictive diet. And this is even the case, I believe, for people who go into these, um, you know, vegan style detox diets where they, they cut out all the processed food and they're having their wonderful kale salads and uh, consuming the hummus with the whole wheat bread or whatever's going on. And again, over the long term, a huge risk to eliminate the most nu nutritious foods on the planet that have fueled human evolution. But in the short term or for a select uh, genetic uh, a sliver of the population, maybe that's going to be a really wonderful health awakening because you're not consuming the junk, especially the number one, I think on everyone's mind now, and it's finally coming into prominence is the refined industrial seed oils. So this is, you know, the worst uh, thing that we can consume. It's extremely prevalent in the, in the diet, even today. Um, Dr. Andrew Weil cites research that 20% of all calories consumed in the standard American diet, come from soybean oil. Not all the other oils, that, that's, that's a higher number, but just soybean oil is one-fifth of all the calories consumed by the average Joe who's not really paying attention and all the things that are uh, boxed, packaged, frozen. Uh, Dr. Kate Shanahan cites research that 40% of all calories coming from a restaurant meal come from refined industrial seed oils because these are so calorically dense and your meal, whatever you, it is that you ordered, your steak, your salmon, your broccoli is being cooked in these uh, offensive oils, your omelet, whatever it is. So it's really, care, it's really um, uh, important to go to the restaurant with uh, you know, a very diligent mindset that you will ask them to cook the food in a saturated fat such as butter or anything besides their uh, nasty oil blends. And I, I often ask the waitress, you know, could you tell me what oil you use to cook? And they, they come back almost always and say, well, we use a blend. It's an olive oil blend. And I'm like, what the F is an olive oil blend? It's the, uh, the word olive oil, which is regarded as a healthy food, uh, cut down with a bunch of 
uh, industrially manufactured oils. And even many of the olive oil that you find, especially like in a big box store, those giant jugs that are $9 or something, uh, those are so old. They were processed so long ago. And instead of the the ideal of a first cold press olive oil, which means you press the olive once, uh, cold temperature, not warm temperature, and put it in the bottle. That's when it's really fresh and potent and has high antioxidants. Uh, but most of the olive oil out there has been cut down. Uh, they're allowed to say extra virgin olive oil on the bottle, even though it's not truly uh, extra virgin. There's minimal regulation. And so you really got to watch out for your consumption of these industrial oils, we'll call them. Sure, sure. That that was something I really wanted to ask you about is, do you know, like, why why are they so ubiquitous? They're just, they're freaking everywhere, man. It's so, I like whole food. Shame on you guys, man. It's in everything, mm. right? Like, yeah. Do you know why that, that is tough? I mean, you know, you get, get talking to an expert like Dr. Kate Shanahan. We have a good YouTube video. If you just type in Brad Kern's Kate Shanahan, uh, vegetable oil or something that affects it's a 15 minute breeze to, through the concept. Uh, but it's, you know, it's all about affordability uh, so these are, you know, really inexpensive and they prolong the shelf life of a package boxed uh, frozen product. So that's the reason they throw them in there is food manufacturing. I mean, we have kids at university today studying, I believe the major is called food science or something to that effect. And they're talking, uh, they're probably going to uh, the chemistry lab to learn just how uh, effective these uh, high polyunsaturated industrial seed oils are for preserving shelf life. And, oh, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's a disaster. And you talked about Whole Foods putting uh, these organic uh, canola oil uh, still on the shelf there. There is a faction of uh, the, the population that still argues that canola oil is healthy because it's derived from a high omega-3 rapeseed plant. Uh, but the problem is the manufacturing, the processing is so offensive that you have to use chemical solvents. You have to process these oils at high temperatures because they don't naturally yield a lot of oil. Unlike an olive, a coconut, an avocado, these are high fat plants that you can very easily extract oil without disturbing the, you know, the tr nutritional integrity of the original plant. And then all the other, um, oil categories, you know, soybean, sunflower, cottonseed, uh, these are all uh, involving high chemical processes. And so it might have been something that had some omega-3 uh, properties at the start, uh, but there's so many other offensive uh, agents and uh, things going on there is that you, you're basically, uh, to quote Dr. Kate, you're basically consuming radiation in a bottle when you <laughs> consume uh, industrial seed oil. It's that bad for the body. It has an instant uh, disturbance to healthy cardiovascular function. There's one uh, memorable study where uh, they took some healthy young subjects, you know, college students, the guys who are game for getting $60 to, to participate in a scientific study, uh, and a single serving of French fries uh, resulted in a disturbance to healthy arterial function. It kind of stiffened up and made their arteries less supple and flexible, and the blood flow a little bit uh, diminished for around 24 hours. Oh, wow. uh, and they know from research that smoking a cigarette will disturb healthy cardiovascular function for around eight hours. So the French fries had a more severe uh, immediate disturbance to heart health than smoking a cigarette. That's not to say that you should swap uh, French fries for cigarettes, but it's pretty shocking to realize how, how bad this stuff is and how much of it we've consumed over our lifetime. So um, anyone who's, who ditches vegetable oils, 
go put a name on whatever crazy I'm on the uh, water balloon, watermelon, uh, no vegetable oil diet. And I feel great. Uh, that's going to be largely the reason for it. And I guess, Dan, to be fair, that's probably the same for a lot of carnivore enthusiasts who have cutting out all plants for 30 days, noticing that there's no more gas digestion, bloating, uh, you know, usual discomfort. And for me, uh, I certainly noticed that everything just calmed down in terms of my uh, digestion and elimination daily report. I don't need to go on details on your podcast here, but it was just a lack of uh, fill in the blank, sure. a lack of gas bloating, uh, elimination irregularities associated with hard workouts and things that I'd had my entire life. You know, uh, you go and do a hard run, you're going to have leaky pipes for the rest of the day. That's just what I thought was part of uh, training. But in fact, it was some irritants that, you know, had had, had left my diet and, and given me a noticeable improvement. Now, um, I make a nut butter. You said it was pretty good. You tried it. It's I eat a awesome. lot of that myself. I do not notice any adverse effects from consuming Brad's macadamia masterpiece. <laughs> Therefore, I feel comfortable putting Brad on the label, jumping over the high jump bar and telling people, hey, this is a fantastic snack or dessert treat. And it's you know filled with uh, delicious, super healthy, unprocessed uh, macadamia nuts, coconut butter, walnuts, pecans to pause for a commercial in the middle of Dan's show. <laughs> but I'm just making the point that like I know what works for me and I've tested. I also happen to enjoy dark chocolate and I eat a ton of it and I don't notice any adverse effects. But until the individual goes to the, to the effort to do a restrictive diet and see what happens and see if you can get a health boost. And I love how Saladino pitches this too. I mean, he's the carnivore king, but he says, hey, it might not be for everybody, a carnivore-ish pattern. He has a chapter in his new book uh, to, to address people that want to, you know, kind of dabble here and there and still enjoy their blueberries in the summertime. So you got to determine your own individual level of sensitivity. And I think his uh, his comment was like, you know, we're talking about taking, taking you from level seven to level nine. And level seven is pretty good. But how do you know that there's a level nine out there that might be much better? And that's absolutely the case for me. Like, you know, I feel pretty good in general, but I'm always looking for an edge. I always want to have a little more energy. I want to recover faster. So I'm open-minded to trying anything that might, you know, contribute to a goal of going from level seven to level nine. For sure. For sure. I, I had a thought I wanted to run by you about plants in particular. I wonder if, and I, I heard this from Kelly Stratton. Mark mentioned it um, on your guys' recent conversation about two meals a day, but it's like, ask someone to name 15 vegetables, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, that's I, funny, huh? Oh, yeah. It's like, I was like, I don't know if I don't think I could do that, but I wonder if it's not so much the vegetables as it is the lack of variety, right? Because I'm, I'm reading Sapiens for like the third time now, and he's talking about people foraging and that being kind of the mainstay of human life essentially. And I, I just, I wonder if it's not so much plants, the fact they're plants, but just this lack of going from, you know, 200 species or hundreds of species of plant material versus these like, you know, 10 or 15 that just happen to be able to easy that are, excuse me, easy to grow domestically. You know, I just, that's a thought I I'm kind of yeah, pondering I mean, on easy to easy to grow and highly cultivated. Mm -hmm. So the strawberry that you see, 
in the big box store for sale in December is not the same as the one uh, that, you know, uh, uh, Saladino's Instagram uh, going around. He spent three weeks with the Hadza with Anthony Gustin, perfect keto guy, and they're eating, you know, uh, wild tubers and whatever random things that have been unadultered. And so we're, we're eating entirely adultered food unless you pull over on the side of the road on vacation in Oregon in the summer and pick some blackberries out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, those are wild blackberries. But yeah, the cultivation and the streamlining of uh, the products, you know, talk about conventional produce with all the uh, pesticides and, and chemicals on there. Yeah, that's a big difference from the ancestral experience. Um, and so, again, it's like, you know, try things out and maybe, uh, you know, a, a diet with less variety might be something that works for you. I'm, I'm you know, of the mind that same with fitness, you know, I do the same thing every morning uh, with my morning exercise, mobility, flexibility, core strengthening, leg strengthening routine. I like the idea that I'm doing the same exact thing because it gives this pattern of consistency. It's now been formed into a habit. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to use willpower or creativity. Um, If I go to the track and do a workout, I might mix it up every time a little bit and introduce some new things that I see and enjoy that creativity and that flexibility. Uh, But there's also a vote to saying, hey, look, if you like to eat the same thing every morning, uh, there's a lot of family stories about the grandfather that lived to be 103 and he had two eggs, one bacon, black coffee and a sugar cube on his way out the door. And that worked for him. So, um, you know, this constant uh, quest for variety, um, even that, you know, there's there's no black and white here. It might might be better to streamline your diet. Sure, sure. Absolutely. I wanted to ask specifically, you, you talk deep on industrial seed oils, but how do those specifically affect fat metabolism, fat metabolism, excuse me, negatively. So these, uh, molecules are similar to the, uh, the, the fat that's in our cells. And so the body gets confused and integrates the refined industrial seed oil into the cell membrane. And so they become, uh, difficult to burn off because they're, uh, chemically altered, uh, agent. Um, Dr. Kate says that uh, people with cellulite, you know, trouble areas where they are losing weight, they're getting fitter, they're getting leaner, but they still have a flabby area on their body that's so frustrating. Uh, part of that is because this is the, uh, the the housing of these chemical oils. And people who go on extreme uh, fat loss diets, uh, what happens sometimes they have like a a toxic reaction because the cells, you know, the, the, the material is being dumped into the bloodstream. And so you're, you know, you're getting, you're getting uh, toxin from the, from the, uh, the, the inside out, right? So you have to kind of slow down your rate of fat loss because all this crap is getting dumped into your bloodstream that's been stored. So I, I believe that's a, um, a, a basic description of what's going on as this gets integrated into healthy fat cells. And then here's where the problem occurs is that when you uh, experience dysfunctional fat metabolism, uh, what are you going to do? You know, you're supposed to go on this diet and go keto and, and cut your carbs out or uh, try fasting or only eating two meals a day like we're talking about. But if you're not good at burning body fat, 
you got big problems ahead because you're not going to have any energy. You're going to feel like hell. And you're going to, when, when you have low energy, the human knows how to uh, crave quick energy and you get directed to go find the nearest uh, dose of sugar. And so you're going to be pushing, uh, you're going to be trending back in the direction of carbohydrate dependency if you have dysfunctional fat metabolism. And the industrial seed oils are a huge contributor to dysfunctional fat metabolism, thereby promoting uh, insulin resistance because the human is compelled to get their energy from dietary carbohydrates carbohydrates in the absence of being able to burn stored body fat. So, you know, sugar's, sugar's a tough one too. Uh, you know, a, a grain-based diet is a tough one. Uh, but Ben Greenfield was ranking and he said, you know, the, the, the seed oils are the worst and, and sugar's behind because at least you can go and burn off sugar when you grab the monkey ball and do a 12-minute power session. Sure. You know, you, you burned off whatever you just ate. And in fact, I think that's an interesting idea. Like if you're going to have dessert one time and you decide to go for that scoop of ice cream or slice of cheesecake or whatever, go bust out a workout or at least walk around the block. Uh, there's research showing that even a really slow walk around the block of like 15 minutes at, I believe, a pace of one mile per hour or two miles per hour, just nothing, just kind of taking a stroll, mutes the insulin response after a meal by 50%. Oh, wow. So we can, we can certainly process uh, carbohydrates effectively when we have an active uh, high movement and energy expenditure lifestyle. Uh, but the seed oils is a different story. You're ingesting, uh, you know, radiation chemicals. Well, it's just, again, it's, they're so ubiquitous, man. It's like, I just, I wonder how much of a factor those are into this kind of just chronic metabolic disease, uh, pandemic, I guess we're going through in a way, but, uh, this is a great segue into metabolic flexibility. So can you just talk about what that is and how do you achieve metabolic flexibility? Yeah, the term just implies that you are skilled at burning, or making and burning a variety of fuel sources based on your needs at any particular time. Uh, and so maybe one of those skills is, uh, like I mentioned, the, um, the slice of cheesecake. Uh, my birthday was last month and I had a slice of cheesecake and it was so good, obviously, because this stuff's not really hanging around my diet very much. So I had another slice of cheesecake on my birthday. That was, that was my right. I was the birthday boy, right? <laughs> um, and I was able to you know, process those calories not pass out in a, uh, a diabetic coma uh, because my body has this uh, attribute of metabolic flexibility. So I can even handle a carb slam. I can also handle a 24-hour fast, which I do on occasion, uh, because in this example, my body is making ketones in the liver, right? If I'm not ingesting glucose, my brain still needs fuel throughout the day. And so I have the flexibility to switch from uh, whatever glucose maybe is hanging around in my diet, or maybe I've burned through it after a few hours, and now I switch over to ketones or going to stored body fat. So the, the biggest attribute of metabolic flexibility is the ability to uh, make stored body fat your primary energy source. So you can thrive, you can feel great, you can work out, you can work out hard, you can go long, even in the absence of regular meals and obsessive feedings and refeedings in the case of the, the athletic realm where we're, we have to rush home to make our protein smoothie uh, after, uh, after a hard workout. And so I guess that's the that's the essence of metabolic flexibility is you can you can do whatever's needed to keep you steady and energetic and and balanced mood, balanced appetite, great cognitive function all day long, whether or not you eat regular meals. Right, right. And does like for me in particular, I was skipping breakfast for a long time and I realized because we eat dinner early, like we eat, 
have two young girls, two young daughters, and uh, you know we'll eat between five and six. And then I wasn't eating again until sometimes noon or one. But I realized like that's way too long for me. And you know even just the twelve hour was pretty good if you go five to five. And you know if I was eating even at ten, that's like you know I was getting a solid fourteen, sixteen hours in. So I, I definitely I think I was doing it a little bit too much. So one thing I've been experimenting with a little bit is. Um, having just kind of a fat, like a bulletproof coffee type of thing, just to kind of maintain that fat burning process and then eating more of that proper meal, kind of late morning type of thing. And it's oh, yeah. been, it's been really effective. Um, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because I'm really interested in this right now. Uh, and that's the idea that if you have good metabolic health, you're athletic, you got the Dan six pack or maybe close to no one's got quite got the Dan six pack, but you exhibit signs of good metabolic health, right? Mm-hmm. So we know that fasting is a stressor to the body. We know that intense exercise is a stressor to the body. And these are positive stressors in general, right? Unless you tempt uh, loading up too many stressors, and possibly suffering some negative consequences. And in my case, I have almost the Dan six pack. I'm, I have good athletic form. I have good metabolic health. My blood work looks good, right? But I'm also in the higher age group of uh, 55 plus now, man. So I'm going out there. I'm trying to do these intense sprint workouts in the older age division. And I'm enjoying my fasting and I'm not super hungry in the morning. I don't need breakfast. I can go and go and I feel great. That may be very well uh, true. Uh, but I'm, I'm starting to realize now, especially talking to Rob Wolf, who made this point wonderfully, that if you have that good metabolic health, uh, nutritious food can be uh, a real boost right. to your performance, your re- ability to recover, your ability to sustain energy rather than conserve energy uh, after these periods of fasting and working out hard. And we know the body does that. We have all kinds of compensatory mecha- mechanisms in place to kind of cool us out if we're pushing things too hard, not eating enough food, training too hard. Uh, Dr. Tommy Wood is a great uh, leader on this. I, I had a couple shows with him on the B-Red podcast, which I thought were the best big picture overview of healthy eating and, and metabolic health and athletics for something like maybe a new listener would go and get so much value out of that. But he said with his athletes that he counsels, he wants them to eat as much nutritious food as they can until they gain one pound of fat. And then you can dial it back. And that's where you know that's you know your, your healthy limit there. You don't want to be gaining fat because you're stuffing your face so much. But if you're an athlete, you have heightened nutritional needs from the guy next door who you know walks his dog around the block and, and gets in a car and, and drives all day. Uh, Rob Wolf's quote, one-liner on this topic was, hey, if you want to live longer, lift more weights and eat more protein. And it's like, <laughs> wow, it. man. I love it. You know, you got to you got to eat more protein if you're going to lift more weights and, and try to survive that regimen. And so, you know, everyone's in a different category. And if you have excess body fat and you're struggling to get it off and you're frustrated, of course, your most sure path there is going to be uh, reducing the insulin production in your diet. And there's two main ways of doing that. One of them is to eat less frequently and get better at fasting. And the other one is to cut out uh, the refined carbohydrates, the grains and the sugars. Um, but uh, there's an important qualifier there. And that is uh, you cannot pursue a fat reduction goal until you're metabolically healthy. And so 
the the cutting of calories uh, in in the attempt to lose weight, and the increasing of exercise in conjunction with cutting calories to lose weight, it's now being revealed by emerging science that it simply doesn't work. And it's pretty mind blowing because we've been socialized to think this calories in, calories out is everything. And oh, here's 2021. I'm going to get to the gym more and, and do an extra workout because I, I need to drop some excess weight, and I'm not going to have so many uh, so, so many such a big portion size at my meals. I'm going to watch that a little bit. And what happens when you do that is your body adjusts to the new level of caloric intake or the new level of exercise output by being lazier and conserving energy and burning fewer calories and keeping you uh, locked at your metabolic and your body composition set point. So um, now we're kind of, uh, our minds are blown. It's like, well, how do I, how do I really do it then if cutting calories and working out more doesn't work? For sure. For sure. You know, you're making me think of, uh, I talked to Logan Schwartz. I heard him on your show on the primal endurance, actually. Um, and he was talking about how biology always tends trends towards efficiency and, mm. you know, listening to you and Mark talk, I was like, Oh, it makes total sense. As you get fitter, what, what's happening in a way is you're becoming more efficient. So you can either do more work or the same amount of work with a lower energy requirement. And I can see how, when you combine that with the calorie restriction, it's all, it's just a recalibrating across. So you're not going to lose weight that way. And what I'm hearing you say with the metabolic flexibility is essentially you're using the two meals a day and the, the fasting protocol is kind of like this training regimen to get your body in shape to burn fat as fuel. And then once you've kind of done that, you can start to be a little more flexible. Is that a pretty concise summary? Yeah, that sounds great. And I think we all need to, um, you know, appreciate, uh, an eating pattern that's flexible and feels good and feels comfortable and easy to sustain because anything can work in the short term. You can turn on the TV show and see the biggest losers dropping all this weight. Uh, but you know, the, 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 the worst kept secret is after the camera light goes off, the attrition rate is massive. I mean, the attrition rate of all diets is known to be 97%. And there was a study out of UCLA saying this is grossly, um, uh, underestimated because they're not counting the people that dropped out of the study. So <laughs> it's 97% of the people that stick around to admit Jeez. that they gain their weight back, but they're still in the study. And the rest of them are like, oh, screw this. I'm, you know, I, I'm blown it and I, and I, and I drop out. So, um, you know, we, we have to awaken to new possibilities here. And one of them is, you know, for, for the athletic types, lifting more weights, eating more protein, not fasting for such a long period of time. If you're doing those wonderful uh, exercise regimen that you're into and, you know, taking, taking that personal aspect. Uh, but again, getting healthy first before trying to drop excess body fat. Uh, is a big one. And, and we see all kinds of weird stuff happening. One of them is the the tendency to over-exercise and overstress yourself in the name of fitness. And what happens in those cases with this chronic overproduction of stress hormones is that your body is going to be triggered with genetic survival mechanisms to hold on to body fat as a survival instinct and burn through lean muscle mass when you're overtraining and also spike appetite, especially for carbohydrates. So you're going to be kind of training your body for carbohydrate dependency rather than this lauded, uh, glorified state of being an excellent fat burner or developing metabolic flexibility. So uh, metabolic flexibility is a lot dependent on your dietary choices, but also your exercise patterns and your movement patterns. 
you know, you've mentioned Rob Wolf a few times now, and he's another guy that, you know, he'll, he's, he's ready to admit, he'll say, I don't know all the time. And I love listening to him. Just I, someone, especially in the, in a scientist that's willing to say that I, I just, it's such a far and few situation these days. You know, I, I really love hearing people say that. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Dan, um, I interviewed Rob Wolf and Saladino back to back. And those two guys of, of anybody I've heard, they are the straightest shooters and they will call out bullshit with no hesitation and no sugar coating. And it's so refreshing to me. And I had a, uh, my friend, Dave Rossi, a popular podcast guest. He's a spiritual author. He interviewed me, turned the tables, turned the microphone around. And, you know, he, he asked me questions uh, for my audience to listen to. It was kind of a fun show. And one of them was, uh, you know, what are you still hiding from the audience or what do they really don't know about Brad Kearns? And the, the question kind of stumped me. And I realized that, you know, we're here in a, in a public forum and we're putting on a show. It's not, you know, I'm not completely authentic. I'm not whining about whatever happened to me this morning before we hit record. I'm here with enthusiasm and energy and, and, and you know, having a great conversation. Uh, but at times I realized I was kind of withholding in the interest of avoiding conflict or being polite and conciliatory uh, times when I smelled bullshit and I just kind of let it, uh, you know, ooze right, right through the, uh, the airwaves because I didn't want to get into to it uh, because I wanted to respect my guests and their point of view. Sure. And after listening to Saladino and Rob Wolf go off, I mean, they're doing a great service to the planet by saying, oh, no, you know, the, the Esselstein's, uh, uh, the, the research is a bunch of bullshit. It's, it's, not a, <laughs> it's not valid. And I was just trying to make like a, an olive branch to my, my main man, my buddy Rip Esselstyn, who's doing a lot of good work. And he's in the whole food plant-based kingdom right. uh, with his Engine 2 brand. Uh, but he's, you know, a positive, enthusiastic guy and he's living a healthy lifestyle. And I love what he's doing and I love his approach. Uh, we have a huge difference of opinion on what constitutes a healthy diet. And that's okay to say. Uh, but, you know, to slam the door on uh, the stuff that just doesn't feel right, boy, that's what, you know, advances culture more than anything. And so uh, I vow to be kind of more honest and direct in the way that I conduct myself as an interviewer or as a guest in this case. And um, it's kind of, you know, a good goal for me because in real life, I'm sort of, uh, non-confrontational rather than the guy on the side of the road who's going to roll his window down and say hey mofo what's your problem you want you, know, you want some action right now no that's not me i'm like my bad sorry you know <laughs> sure sure <laughs> yeah i'm i'm the guy who's never going to get in a fight on the road well that's uh we need more people like that one uh one thing i wanted to ask about fasting is i think there's like with fitness and training and nutrition you can really dive in hard right my concern is with fasting, if someone's super motivated, you know, a really intense fitness health enthusiast, they could get, they could take fasting to, you know, kind of a dangerous extreme. Do you have any thoughts or advice for someone that's maybe want to, wants to explore fasting, but to make sure they don't go off that deep end? Yeah, good one. Thanks for bringing that up. And we have a nice section in the book about that. Uh, I believe the uh, the subhead is called liquidating your assets. And that's a quote from Dr. Tommy Wood. And he says, if you're not uh, metabolically healthy, you're not prepared for a dietary transformation like aggressive fasting or carb restriction, what you're going to do is you're going to liquidate your assets to get the energy you need to function throughout the day. 
And in the case of, uh, you know, ill-prepared fasting, you're going to stimulate the fight-or-flight response and the process of gluconeogenesis, which is the conversion of lean muscle mass into glucose. So you're going to get your glucose needs met because your brain has a ravenous appetite for calories and it can burn only glucose, a little bit of other uh, things like uh, lactate. And of course, it can burn a lot of ketones if you happen to be able to make those ketones through, um, you know, pretty, pretty devoted effort. But mainly, your brain is a sugar machine, and it needs that sugar all day long, it burns 20% uh, of all the calories in the body. Uh, for me, it's 23% because my brain's bigger than I'm just kidding. But, um, you know, <laughs> like, oh, you, wow. <laughs> uh, if you if you haven't done the hard work to get fat adapted to get good at burning body fat, uh, eliminating those seed oils and, and kind of turning those engines on and being patient and doing a lot of walking and moving around rather than sitting because these are all things that contribute to fat burning, sleeping well rather than compromising sleep. If you haven't done that hard work, you're just going to elicit a stress response and you're going to be bathed in a glucose that your uh, the stress hormones are you know prompting these processes. And so what happens there is you go on a crash diet uh, now you're fasting 18 hours a day. I'm on the 18-6 pattern. Uh, you feel great for about three weeks because you're wired on fumes. And I think we can all reference times of uh, great personal crisis in life. You know, someone's on their deathbed, whatever. You're going to the hospital every day. You're not even hungry. You wake up at 6 a.m. wide awake because it's such a tough time. And your body is pumping stress hormones into your bloodstream to get through these traumatic periods of life. You don't need food. You're not hungry. Your hands are shaking already. And so that's, a, you know, that's an example of the stress response in high gear. Uh, so on these crash diets, you're going to feel great for a certain period of time. And then you're going to crash and burn and have this huge compensatory response where all you want to do is sit around and eat because you're you know, trying to recover from this, uh, this fight or flight life or death battle that you uh, enacted uh, inappropriately. And so to be prepared and to enter into this realm of fasting gently and gracefully, that is the big deal here. Um, you might have heard the term keto flu. The listeners might be familiar, and it's kind of a it's kind of a thing you can Google as part of the ketogenic diet. And people say, uh, "Don't worry, hang in there. It, it lasts for a couple of few weeks, and you you really feel terrible. But you know, when you get through it, uh, then it's going to be great." And I'm calling bullshit on that right now. Speaking of bullshit, because <laughs> uh, if you're doing a dietary transition that feels like hell, uh, something's wrong with your approach. Luis Villasenor, Keto Gains, he says a lot of people, uh, they cut their sodium too much when they clean up mm. their diet because they get rid of all those high sodium, nasty processed foods, but they have an increased need for sodium. And when your sodium is down, you're going to get the keto flu. You're going to feel like crap. You're going to have the afternoon blues. You're going to crave sugar. All these things, all, the, all that could be needed is you know a few extra shakes of salt every time you consume a beverage. So these are the things to watch out for. We want people to feel great all the way through all the way along. And when it comes to fasting, uh, you can, you know, proceed with this when strategy, W-H-E-N, it stands for when hunger ensues naturally. Mm -hmm. So let's say you're going to try to uh, delay your first meal of the day until you actually get hungry rather than just habitually slamming some food down your throat because uh, the sun's up. And that's probably a good strategy for everybody. But guess what? Some people might experience hunger symptoms at nine in the morning. So go ahead and sit down and have a, a delicious meal. 
when I first transitioned over from my, you know, basically what I thought was a healthy diet, but it was a ton of carbohydrates and a grain-based diet for sure. I had this giant cereal bowl every single morning, you know, the athletes uh, pig trough. And I had this dating back to my triathlon days where I'd have four different kinds of cereal and huge scoops of nonfat yogurt and fresh fruit and maybe some honey drizzled along with slices of bananas and a big thing of soy milk. And I just have this huge carbohydrate bomb every morning. But when I transitioned over to eating primally when I started working with Mark in 2008, I traded the cereal bowl in for a gigantic omelet where I used six eggs, uh, sauteed a bunch of vegetables, big slices of avocado, salsa, melted cheese, bacon, and I'd have this giant beast that barely fit on a plate. <laughs> and I had that every single morning for quite a long time because I was you know, still needing this energy in the morning. I'd been so accustomed to having that huge bowl of cereal, uh, but it, this was, wasn't giving me that huge carbohydrate spike. And I was able to sustain my energy burning through the omelet in the morning hours and it felt great. And then maybe it was a year down the line. I mean, it was plenty of time under my belt. I finally realized one day that you know, I wasn't really hungry for that omelet right away first thing in the morning. So I could kind of take that stair step to the next phase of my my metabolic adaptation, my ability to become more and more metabolically flexible and not be beholden to this huge, gigantic uh, dose of uh, good energy in the morning. And that's, you know, it has to happen naturally, has to feel comfortable. Uh, Mark Sisson talks about this a lot where it's like, you know what? I just forgot to eat this afternoon because I was so busy working or playing Frisbee or having fun. And that's what we want people to get to is that sensation of, you know, not being obsessed or attached to, to anything really. I mean, attachment leads to suffering, right? The Buddhist, uh, the Buddhist mantra. And so metabolic flexibility really means that you can take it or leave it, but it's all natural and graceful. And when you're hungry, we strongly recommend going and getting something to eat until you want to go into the advanced strategies. And then we want you to work through a little bit of hunger here and there, because guess what? You're going to survive. And that's when you're really going to kickstart accelerated fat burning. If you're trying to go from, from good to great, for example. For sure. And what I really like about what you guys are doing and kind of what you guys have always done really is it's all about this lifestyle. It's all about a lifestyle versus a diet. And even though diets in the, in the title, sometimes whatever, it really ultimately is a lifestyle and two meals a day seems like that more than anything. And it, it reminds me of, I don't know if you've read atomic habits, but atomic habits, excuse me, mm -hmm. but he talks about kind of creating this avatar of the person that you want to be and kind of using that as a reference point. And I think, you know, for the listeners, for the monkeys, it's like, if you want to be metabolically flexible, that's the type of person you want to be. And then you can kind of reverse engineer strategies to become metabolically flexible. So I really like that. Oh man, I love the, uh, that, that concept. I think I have that on my audio book list. I've mm. listened to a little bit of it, but I'm becoming more and more interested in these, I guess you'd call it the, the, the personal growth realm and the sure. messages that, uh, people like Jack Canfield, you, you, uh, we talked about him offline that he's got some, some props in the book and, um, you know, some of the, some of the content that's out there nowadays, um, I think it's really important to pay attention to, especially um, the ability for you to take control of your thoughts and have that manifest your reality and your future and to kind of uh, work really hard at destroying and reframing self-limiting beliefs that are holding you back. And uh, I've had some experts on my show and uh, read a lot, people like Bruce Lipton, The Biology of Belief, and um, you know, experts in psychology like Dr. Wendy Walsh saying, you know, we form these 
these notions in childhood when we're an open sponge and we're taking in all kinds of information and forming our self-esteem for the first time. And then we carry with carry them with us uh, throughout the rest of our life. And the bad stuff especially uh, can be really harmful if we fail to acknowledge it or, you know, don't unwind these things. And we find ourselves, you know, repeating the same patterns over and over. And one of them is like failed weight loss dietary transformation efforts or Mm -hmm. failed uh, fitness goals. And why has this happened uh, four or five times in a row? I think probably the main one is a flawed approach. And so now we're learning the technology that, you know, you don't starve yourself and exercise to exhaustion uh, when you're trying to drop excess body fat, you have to do it right. Uh, But I think deep down uh, when we're scarred from these failures, we start to form these protective beliefs that are holding us back. And so you're, you're the way you just conveyed that of like envisioning that person you want to be. Maybe you're not that person right now, but if you can form that vision and do a a, a vision board and a mind movie like uh, Joe Dispenza talks about, and I've been a guy that, you know, kind of uh, pushed this stuff off to the side because I was too busy to worry about it. And by the way, I'm already been successful. I was the number three ranked triathlete in the world. So I had my, I had my shit together, but I didn't realize these loose ends that were around and these uh, behavior patterns that were locked in in these places in my, my life where I was was, you know, had shortcomings and was not the person that I wanted to be, um, to take a look at those and envision a different possibility where I didn't have to be uh, stuck in this rut the rest of my life. That's been really helpful for me. So I, I, I made myself a little mind movie and I watch it. I watch it every day. At first it was two minutes long and I was like, all right, all right. I've already seen all these pictures of wonderful. There I am with my family on the beach in Hawaii. Uh, there I am with my old dog enjoying yet another workout because she's 13 years old. She's not going to be around forever. And that's a top priority so i sped it up i put it on um high speed so now it takes like 20 seconds but it's going into my brain every single day and so i'm really uh, a new fan of things like the mind movie or the vision board okay what i heard you mention this this turnaround statement concept is that kind of what you just described or is that a separate idea the turnaround yeah so that's jack canfield's concept okay and what he suggests is that we identify these uh, flawed and dated and no longer uh, self-serving beliefs, you know, these negative beliefs. And so um, you you call it into, uh, you call it into prominence and then you create a turnaround statement. Like I'm capable of adhering to a sensible exercise program, even though I feel like uh, whatever you brought to the table, like I've failed so many times, I'm just kind of giving up and I guess I'm not a fitness person, you know, whatever that, whatever that mouth is doing, you create a turnaround statement saying, I'm, you know, I'm open. When I was uh, competing, mm-hmm. I used to get uh, treated with this really advanced uh, holistic healer named Dr. Mike Greenberg in Atlanta. Look him up, people, if you're out there. <laughs> uh, but he does this practice called neuroemotional anti-sabotage technique, N-E-A-T. And this is where uh, your stored emotional memories may be hampering your present day physical performance. So as an athlete, I was very interested in breaking through and I'd have things like fear of the crazy ass swim start where people are slamming you in the head with their fist and you're getting pulled underwater and you have to catch your breath and all that. And so I'd create these turnaround statements like, um, you know, I am aggressive and confident at the start of the swim and I will fight for my position and no one will take it away from me, that kind of thing. Um, and so just by saying stuff out loud, it has a huge positive impact. And there's so much research behind this. And by the way, if you think this stuff is nonsense, you're absolutely correct. 
It's total nonsense because you believe it to be so. <laughs> if you are open to the possibility that doing things like a turnaround statement can help you, then you're going to be absolutely right. And they're going to help you tremendously. It's all up to you. And I can waste more breath if you want. But just to put that message out there that like, hey, people, open up your minds. You're in control. You're the one in control of your thoughts and beliefs. And um, it, it can be you know, really powerful. And I also want to say, Dan, like there's somewhat of an overdose on this these days. And so the one thing I don't want people to feel like is like uh, feeling inferior or that you're left behind because you're not a super duper badass with your you, you don't have your mind movie going right now. And you haven't manifested a million zillion dollars like the person uh, talking how they, you know, created a business. Uh, they dreamed of it and then they, they dreamed of it so hard that it came true the next day. So we don't want to go overboard into that place where you can sign up, sort of uh, feel resistant to it or negative about it. Right. But just taking these little baby steps and being open to uh, improvement and progress and feeling better and, and breaking through uh, ruts and bad patterns. That's the kind of thing that can be fun for everybody. And you don't have to compare yourself to the Instagram influencer who manifested their Ferrari and, and all the rest of that bullshit. It totally reminds me of Jordan Peterson, stand up straight with your shoulders back, you know, just create mm. this, Love this it. physical yeah. sensation. And it just kind of starts as a foundation you can build off of. So it makes yeah. total sense. And you know, two meals a day. It's not just about nutrition. It's not just about diet. It's again, it's lifestyle. And I've heard you talk about this for years now, but where did the idea that we need to suffer to get results originate? And why the hell do we still believe that today? Yeah, man. What the hell is that all about? <laughs> I don't know. It could, it could date back to, um, 1976 rocky i mean what a great right. movie for you sure, know for sure and, and aroused emotion in all of us in one best picture and boy that guy you know he worked hard for his shot at the title uh but i i do uh have some reflections on the fitness culture because so much of it's wonderful you know what you've done with your your business and building the building the tribe of monkeys and making fitness accessible and uh, focusing on the right things that, that there's so many great things happening but there's also this prevailing approach of glorifying uh, struggling and suffering and torturing yourself uh, to pursue superficial results uh, like the model with the six pack who's advertising uh, to, you know, to order your Peloton bike and you see the workout happening and, and the person's dripping sweat and then they high five the person next to them because they did such amazing work. And sure, once in a while, pushing your body to your absolute physical limit is a tremendous growth experience. And I mean, look at me, I was a professional triathlete for nine years. It was the centerpiece of my life and, and you know, putting myself under that kind of pressure and that kind of challenge and having that compelling goal was wonderful. Um, it's, it's not a, it's not a good match for, uh, you know, decades of living. It's a phase that we go through usually when we're younger, but I think, you know, I still pull from that experience and I have, or I have the attempt here to live my life on the edge all the time where I always have a compelling competitive goal and I'm really serious about it. And I really want to perform well and I want to do it right. And it's, you know, a wonderful way to, uh, kind of piece together all the other mundane parts of life or the things where you can't really unleash your competitive intensity uh, every single day, every hour. Uh, but to have that in the proper perspective is really important. And to realize that there's a right way to, uh, to, to challenge yourself. And then there's a way that's a disaster. Um, Roger Bannister, you know, the, uh, the sub four minute miler, right. 
uh, the late Sir Roger Bannister. Um, he wrote a wonderful book when he was still in his 20s, just retiring from, from running when he broke the first sub four minute mile. And he said, um, struggle gives meaning and richness to life. And it's, it, it's a wonderful quote because, you know, without struggle, life is boring and, and too easy and too comfortable. And I think we all uh, can, you know, dip our toe in that type of lifestyle where, geez, you know, so you went to Hawaii and you laid on the beach for uh, nine days. Well, maybe you were ready to go home after six days of laying on the beach or maybe on day seven, you wanted to go hike up the nearby uh, trail to the rainforest and you got to do something with life. Otherwise, it's kind of, you know, boring. Um, but I think the the quote to me, I really want to emphasize that you have to have that struggle in the proper context. So struggling to the starting line because you paid your registration money to run the Boulder Boulder, but your temperature is 102 Fahrenheit and you don't want to miss the race because there's no refunds. That's not the struggle we're talking about. We're talking about the struggle of putting yourself out there and preparing carefully for a peak performance effort. And I love your story. I want listeners to go listen to our interview <laughs> on the BRAD podcast about your journey through the, uh, the NCAA athletic uh, experience where, you know, you struggled royally. You were not a selected person. You were not a scholarship athlete. You went out there, you took a beating and you came back every day with a smile on your face. And that gave such meaning and richness to your life. And of course, came out well. It always does come out well. Uh, but you have to have that in the proper context. You you weren't going out there, um, you know, under-trained, wanting to get your ass kicked by a Division <laughs> One scholarship athlete. You were the guy that was, you know, looking for every advantage and fighting really hard. So there's a huge difference there. And, you know, this mentality, that, to answer your question, which sometimes I'm not good at, but, you know, where did this come from? You know, I think it's the the marketing forces in the fitness scene. Um, they They want to sell instant gratification. They want to sell, um, you know, this this immediate uh, return on investment value. Let's say with a personal trainer, you know, I'm going to pay some guy fifty bucks to work out with me. Well, guess what? He's going to earn his money because he's going to be like my cheerleader and my come on, three more, you can do it, and high five and make me feel good in, in the moment, in the context. And that is one of the many roles of a trainer is to keep you, you know, keep you motivated and focused. But in the big picture, maybe that trainer, the best trainer, is going to be uh, meeting you one day and saying, hey, man, you look tired. You don't seem right. Is everything okay? Why don't we just take a walk instead of uh, hit the weights this day? And, you know, that's not the that that's not as much value for your $50 as the guy in there, you know, exhorting you to do a few more reps. And so I think we need to back off from, you know, the glorification of suffering in the name of uh, selling fitness product and instead, you know, look, look deeper into what a fitness experience can really be all about. For sure. It's like there's the perceived value of something that's hard is higher value, you know, versus you can do something <laughs> smart training is, you know, oftentimes not necessarily hard, but it's, it's more tactical. It's smart. And, you know, Logan, Logan Schwartz talked about that as well. His, he had this kind of like Socratic, Socratic method of how he worked with clients and approach training and all that. So it's, um, it's just, it's fascinating how the fitness industry, it's like the marketing teams have, uh, superseded science as far as what, you yeah. know, what we should be doing. So, oh my gosh. I mean, I had to learn this as hard, uh, the hardest way you can possibly imagine. And that was through my journey as a professional triathlete. I started as a very young guy. I was 21. I was on the pro circuit. I was traveling all the, around the world all of a sudden. And I was so focused and competitive and dedicated. I would do whatever it took 
to succeed in this sport that I love so much. And I had so much energy and competitive intensity. And every day I was willing to bring it on. And I got a few years down the line and I realized, look, I was dedicating my entire life to the sport. I had, I had, you know, I was sleeping half of my life. I was sleeping 12 hours every day, 10 hours at night, two hour afternoon nap every day without fail. And so every ounce of energy, my life was completely set up to compete on the pro circuit and train and eat and sleep and not waste energy on, on many other things. Uh, and so I got a few years down the road and I realized that there were still dudes ahead of me uh, on the race course. And I'm like, well, this ain't fair. This sucks. You know, Mike Pig is still kicking my ass. Mark Allen is still kicking my ass, but I'm training as hard as I, as hard as humanly possible. I have a lot of athletic talent and genetic aptitude for this sport. Why are these guys still beating me? Um, I can't train any harder. And so I had a great conversation with Mark Allen halfway through my career. And I said, dude, what's going on? You know, how can you kick my ass so badly when all I do is wake up every day and I train and eat and sleep? And he says, you got to slow down. You got to take care of your body. You got to monitor your heart rate. This was in the late 80s when heart rate training first mm -hmm. came to be. And we had this realization that if you strap this thing on your chest and look at the number, uh, the number is going to help you regulate that competitive intensity on a day after day after day basis so that you can unleash it on race day instead of unleashing it on this poor sucker on the bike path who passed you wearing sneakers and you're a pro and you don't want some guy wearing sneakers to pass you so you catch back up to him even though it's your easy recovery day and there goes you just blew your recovery day because of your ego so i had to learn those lessons the hard way that slowing down is actually the gateway uh, to being a better athlete and to you know regulating uh, that ego and that competitive intensity and you know being being human about it being intuitive reasoning with your instincts rather than just being an animal and chasing you know chasing until you drop. I watch my dog do that. My dog's amazing. I mean, the dog's exhausted. We go on a four hour hike and then there's a squirrel uh, down the trail, 50 meters. And the dog takes off like a shot when, you know, any human would be like, I'm exhausted. I can't move my, my hip flexors anymore. But the dog, the dog can bring it until, until they collapse and lie around for, you know, uh, two days, two days at the home. You've uh, listen. I've been listening to you for, gosh, it's probably been three or four years now at least, but you know, listening to you, I've heard your story and you've kind of, from what I can ascertain, you've had this journey of, you know, you were a hardcore professional athlete and it was like physicality first, physical training first. <laughs> and then you kind of added on the nutrition on top of that. Now you're adding on this more mind mental side. How, what are your thoughts on basically limiting or kind of developing an information diet as far as what inputs you let into your mind? Oh man, good question. Thanks. Um, this is like my biggest concern these days. And my, my biggest number one primary health concern really is this hyperconnectivity, this constant potential for distractibility and losing focus on, you know, the, the highest expression of your talents and your core daily responsibilities. And so um, I talk a lot about my cold exposure regimen. I jump in the chest freezer and I'm devoted to my exercise morning routine and everything's great and I'm so disciplined. And then, you know, I'm still fighting the battle and the email inbox is distracting me from the book project that I'm working on now. And so, you know, I'm admitting to it. I'm thinking about it all the time. I'm trying so hard to turn it around, but it's a constant battle. And, you know, the further we advance with technology, 
it's wonderful. You know, I love Google Maps when I'm trying to get somewhere because I remember the old days. I don't know if you're old enough to remember, but, you know, whipping out those accordion maps in your car right, and pulling right. over on the side of the road and going, holy crap, I don't know where this place is. You know, there's so many great benefits of uh, modern times and the exchange of information. But now we're compelled to exercise extreme discipline like never before, no other time before in human history. And it's all on us. And we're fighting a royal battery again against those marketing forces, just like with the, the, the suffering ethos in the fitness industry. Now we have the, the great leaders of the, the digital revolution and some of the smartest minds on the planet are trying to gain our attention and our, their, their audience share. So if you go on the big social media platforms, they have deliberate attempts to engage more of your attention and keep you on there longer because that's how they make money. And they're smart and they're clever and they cater to you know the dopamine uh, triggers of the brain, which is the, the strongest human drive. And so just you know acknowledging it, being aware of it, and then you know putting into place uh, rules and guidelines that uh, set you up for success. Uh, you mentioned Kelly Starrett. I think people know who he is. He's the author of um, many great books, including Becoming a Supple Leopard. Uh, he's the founder of the Ready State and one of the leading trainers and mobility rehabilitation experts in the world. And when, when I did a podcast with him, he spent more time talking about these weird little tidbit uh, advice because that was the, the most prominent thing on his mind. He wasn't talking about your squat competency. He was telling me, look, you got to plug your iPhone out in the hall, not in the bedroom, in the hall so you won't be tempted. And if you have kids, guess what we do? We drive our car a mile away from the school and walk it in every day so we can give a walking experience to our kids. You know, some people saying, well, we live too far from school. Our kids, we have to drive there. And it's like, okay, fine. We'll drive a mile away and then do your thing there. And that was uh, a more prominent interest to him than his core area of expertise of teaching you how to do a, a correct squad. And I thought it was really beautiful to kind of, uh, you know, get a glimpse into one of the thought leaders saying, hey, you know what? This stuff is connected you know, strongly connected to your performance in the gym, because if you're up late at night working on your phone, you're not going to be recovering from the awesome workout you did. Yeah. It's, it's been so fascinating to me how it was like, it was so again, like physically focused in the sense of like, how's your snatch technique? You know, what are your running intervals look like all that stuff. And then, you know, guys like Kelly, they're taking the step back to the, again, the first principles where it's like, well, are you walking 12,000 steps a day? Are you eating properly? Are you getting good sleep? You know, it's, um, it's really been eye opening to me. And, you know, I have two daughters, one's 10 months and one's two and a half years. And it's like, I think as a parent, you really get hit with that hard. And, um, you realize how having that solid foundation is so important, especially as you get older as well, you know? Yeah. And the kids today, I mean, my heart goes out to them because they're uh, living in the digital world entirely. And at least me, people, people my age, and for to some extent your age, um, we had a portion of our lives that was free from the mm. mobile device. And mm. so uh, with my kids, now they're 23 and 21, but I fought that battle early on. And they were, you know, they wanted to get video games when they were 10 years old. I go, guess what? Go to your friend's house. I can't control what's there. You can go play there, but we ain't never getting that shit in this house. And I, you know, I, I caved in when they were 13 or whatever. And the, the Wii came out for Christmas with the, the Wii board and the, the snowboarding challenge. Oh my God, that stuff was so fun. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but we have to fight that battle, especially uh, and setting setting example for our kids. And um, I had a I had a show with Andre Obradovic. He's a 
uh, Australian mm. health and Great show, uh, fitness coach. And he was uh, re- remembering a period of time when he was a, a career freak. He was an executive at Cisco and you can read about it on his website about how, you know, he bombed out and crashed and burned in his life and had a breakdown and, you know, a change in his career and his life path. Uh, but he was so focused on work for those years uh, that, you know, he kind of felt like it compromised his life. And then he said he noticed his kids in their 20s and starting their careers, uh, engaging in those same patterns like, oh, sorry, dad, I know I said I was gonna come over for dinner, but I'm so busy, I got extra work and I can't come. And he realized like that was the example that he set. And of course, his kids are modeling that now. And it was kind of a, a heartbreaking story. Of course, they're working on it and, and turning things around and recalibrating. But you know, to, you're, you're passing on all these things to little kids. So we have to watch our behaviors really carefully especially, you know, especially when, um, you're raising little ones. Yeah, no, I, it's, it breaks my heart to, you know, if I'm ever on my phone and they're trying to get your attention and I totally just don't hear it, my wife has to kind of zap me out of the, you know, the zombie trance. So it's, uh, something I'm trying to really, it's affecting me more and more these days, just social media and all that, just that there's constant inputs, you know, and I think really being cognizant of what you're allowing in is super important. We've, uh, we're getting pretty deep here. The, the topic I want to talk to you about most cold exposure. We have time to go over that real quick and then we'll, we can wrap it up. Sure, man. That's a, that's a favorite topic of ours. So, you know, you, I've heard you talk about it again for years, you would do your morning cold plunge and what, what have you seen specifically in your own journey as the benefits of this morning cold exposure routine? Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering uh, why I started now that you asked the question. And I, I realized it was my friend Dave Cobran was big into this and I was over at his house and he had an ice machine uh, set up in his master master bathtub. And he says, here's what I do. I make these ice cubes. I dump them in the bath. Uh, I go for a, a quick jog and I come back and I jump in the cold tub. And it just seemed such a cool thing. And, you know, early pioneers like Kelly Starrett and Brian McKenzie were talking about the benefits. Rhonda Patrick has a great 22-page uh, research paper that you can download for free off her website with all the scientific uh, background of the, the hormetic benefits of cold exposure. You get an instant boost in hormonal function. Uh, there's a great study out of Finland uh, showing that uh, even a, an immersion as short as 20 seconds into 40 degree Fahrenheit water, just above freezing, a 20 second immersion is enough to boost the prominent mood elevating known as the focusing hormone neurotransmitter norepinephrine. It's enough to boost that for an hour to a level 200 to 300% above baseline. And I think we can all reference maybe a time where you were, you know, jumping in the snow or, or you know, jumping into the freezing cold river in the middle of winter and screaming and then running back into your, your condo on vacation or whatever. You know, we've all had that exhilarating boost of exposing ourselves to cold and then immediately warming. So there's a way to do this in a therapeutic manner. So I want people to understand, like, this is not some torture fest where uh, I'm trying to uh, become the next Wim Hof Jr. and, and sit past packed an ice for an hour and 45 minutes to break the Guinness world record. It's more of a, you know, short duration, optimally brief and comfortable to the individual as they build competency. Of course they can stay longer, uh, but it's to get that wonderful hormonal boost and to integrate it as a health practice. And, you know, the science is showing not only the hormone boost, but you have an anti-inflammatory effect, you have an immune boosting effect. And there's plenty of research showing that our bodies respond really well 
to these brief uh, adaptive, uh, brief stressors that deliver a net adaptive benefit. Uh, but for me, one of the other ones that I, I think is really important to mention is um, the psychological benefits. So the fact that I can uh, go downstairs and jump into this chest freezer filled with 36 to 38 degree water and spend a few minutes in there doing uh, some deep diaphragmatic breaths and really entering a meditative state because that's the best way to endure the cold without worrying about it or thinking about it and wondering when the heck you're going to get out. I just go through 20 breath cycles and I'm not really concerned. I'm just focusing on my breath. Or, you know, since my move to Lake Tahoe, now I have the lake there in the winter months where I don't need the chest freezer. I just go swimming. And it's funny, I go to the, the public beach sometimes and the tourists are there taking pictures and the beach is full of snow and ice. And then, you know, they're looking at this amazing, beautiful lake, and then some dude shows up in a bathing suit and and goes in for a swim. And they're like, whoa, whoa, "What's up, man? That's incredible! What are you doing?" So it's kind of fun to share with the the random uh, the random tourist in Lake Tahoe. Uh, but it's a great way to experience nature. When I'm out there, it feels so peaceful. I'm not going in there until I get frozen and into a health risk. I'm just enjoying it. And it's making me a more disciplined and focused human because I'm able to override all the, you know, the chatter in my mind. Like oftentimes at home, I'll, I'll procrastinate and I'll think like, yeah, maybe I should uh, sweep the kitchen floor first. It's looking kind of dusty before I go jump in the chest freezer. Or, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna go uh, uh, jump in the lake, but maybe I should stop at the market first. I think we have some things on our list. You know, you can always talk yourself out of it, but the fact that you go through and execute it, it feels really good. And uh, I recommend it to anybody, even at you know the introductory level, which is just to turn that shower handle to cold for a few minutes, and you know get get a sense of what the experience is like without you know without too much discomfort. You know, I was doing some, I'm working on, it's called the body hardening training manual. It's one of our, uh, infamous monkey training manuals for, uh, the stoic Kickstarter, but, uh, I was doing some cold exposure research and norepinephrine kept coming up and, you know, the kind of the conclusion I came to was it's this awesome hormetic experience that it kind of resets your fight or flight response because you're in like what the body perceives as a real fight or flight situation versus like email or traffic or whatever, you know? <laughs> so yeah. yeah, it's just, it seems like this really, you know, very simple, you know, essentially free way to just kind of help reset that and break up that chronic stress pattern, you know? Yeah. Well said. And in fact, that's the best way to describe it. I think is that it really is a fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. Because you're entering cold water, which will kill you in a matter of time, probably in an hour or something, not not five minutes. Uh, but then after the fight or flight response, because it's optimally brief, you experience a, a counter parasympathetic response. So you become relaxed and uh, you know better functioning with immune and hormonal uh, afterward as you adjust and try to recalibrate back to homeostasis. So that's what it's all about. Same with uh, a, a sprint workout or a strength training session, right, Dan? You're going and you're beating up your muscles. And then in the aftermath, that's when you recover and get stronger and more resilient. I think that's a good note to end on. Brad Kearns, you're a wild man. I appreciate your time. So the book... Coming from a wild man, I really, <laughs> really appreciate that compliment. I mean, someone could call me a wild man. Maybe it's because I'm you know, driving recklessly down the street, but no, a real wild man. I'm, I'm enjoying that with honor. Thank you. Oh, and uh, so two meals a day, and it's out now? 
It's out now, and you can go to twomealsadaybook.com and get these wonderful、uh, pre-order benefits. Even though you can buy the book itself on on Amazon or wherever you like to buy books, but we also have some cool bonus materials like、uh, an audio overview summary and a recipe PDF that you can download. So thanks for your interest, and boy, keep out, keep cranking out the good content. I'm so honored to be part of the show lineup. Thanks, Brad. Stay wild out there. Thanks, Dan. 